Figs and fish are more than food, is what I titled today's lesson. Uh, I'll try to come up with some catchy titles for some of these lessons. I don't have, uh, some of them aren't as fun. Next week's, if you'll look on there, is uh, Even Death Has No Victory. We're finally going to get to the, the miracles of the raising of the dead. Uh, and then I'm looking for a substitute teacher for that Sunday after Thanksgiving. So if you are interested, please let me know. If not, I'll have to draft Robert uh, if he's going to be here. But uh, let me know if you are interested. I uh, would love for someone to uh, teach that last lesson. I'll be happy to provide you with my notes and handouts ready to roll. So if you are interested in that, please let me know uh, as we finish out the quarter uh, this month. Uh, of all the miracles, most of them, if you see, are, are really having to do with healing people. Uh, you see sicknesses, you see infirmities, you see uh, situations where the, the people have no control, no ability to help themselves. They reach out to the Lord, and we've seen that, of course, He, he helps the blind to see. We, we've talked about in some other lessons that those that, that could not walk were able to walk. Uh, he, he really helps heal physically uh, the individuals. And of course, as we looked in our studies, I believe it extends even further that he's able to also heal them spiritually. And there's been several uh, references by, by Jesus when he does the healing, such as when he uh, told the man who was brought in by his four friends uh, that your sins are forgiven. Obviously, there is a spiritual healing that occurs uh, in that situation. That's a little different than just the physical healing. Uh, but these, these miracles that we have really gone into and we have looked at uh, are miracles that have shown us his healing power, his, his power over nature. Uh, think about the, the power over nature we saw about uh, saving his disciples, the apostles as they were on the ships. He didn't necessarily heal them in that situation, but he did save them physically from uh, the terror or the problems that arose while they were out on sea. Uh, we don't know if they would have crashed or been you know, shipwrecked or what, what may. We don't know if they would have drowned necessarily, but we know they were fearful of all those things because of their responsiveness. And Jesus just healed, them, uh, healed the, the storm, so to speak. He, 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 he stilled the storm so that it would no longer cause them concern or problems. Uh, those are the kind of miracles we've talked about thus far. These miracles here, as you look at the fig tree and the uh, pr presentation of the uh, coin in the fish, are a little bit different because what you see in these situations are object lessons. Uh, we jokingly have talked about how I keep saying parables uh, during the course of this study. Um, and this morning, Brother George you know, mentioned that he thought this study was on parables, not miracles, because I always seem to say the word parables, and he's right. And, and what is interesting is really that the purpose behind both of them are to convey messages and to convey some spiritual, I believe, some spiritual um, lessons or applications, some points to those that are listening. Of course, the difference is, of course, I believe the miracles, as we talked about, underscore and have presented Christ's power and his authority versus the parables have been more or less just to tell a spiritual story with some type of an earthly message uh, is really what you see with the parables. You see an application of uh, Jesus using everyday, ordinary type events or situations, circumstances, individuals to try and present some type of a spiritual message in parables. And miracles, that's not always the case, really. In fact, if you look at the miracles, of all the miracles, these two may be the only two that are similar to parables. And the reason I say that is because he used these two parables to use uh, as object lessons uh, versus 
them being for a healing process or to save or to help someone to get through some, some struggles. Both of these situations and these two miracles that we're studying this morning uh, have nothing to do about saving anyone, whether from physical infirmities or sickness or from a, a storm on the sea, but they have to do more so with uh, expressing and teaching someone about who Christ is. So as you look at this, indeed, in this story and in this miracle, uh, these two miracles, the, the figs and the fish are much, much more than just food. In fact, they are object lessons for individuals like us to look at, uh, for his disciples who were there firsthand on the account, to, to consider these object lessons and what they mean to them in their lives. I found it very interesting to think about uh, as you go forward. There's some dispute about the fig tree and and uh, was it just mean-spirited of, of Jesus to curse this poor fig tree that didn't have any fruit on it? And we'll get to that a little bit, hopefully, as we talk about that miracle. Uh, but these are different miracles because the, just the substance of what was going on and what was being taught as you look at these miracles. So I, I think it's, it's neat to look at these two. That's why I grouped them together as being two object lessons for us. As you look at the miracles of Christ, they weren't nearly, as I said, it's not the emotional appeal, so to speak, uh, that the other miracles may have had. But in fact, their, their importance is probably even more important because of what teachings and lessons that they conveyed to the disciples uh, as he showed them these miracles of uh, cursing the fig tree and, of course, uh, producing or allowing a coin uh, to be found inside of the fish. I want to look at these two uh, miracles, if we could, uh, this morning in the order, hopefully chronologically, that you see. But before we do that, I want to make a, a point here about the authority of Christ. The authority principle is the most important principle, I believe, for Christians to understand. Uh, and those of us that are exposed to other denominations, uh, to our friends or maybe even family members who have uh, somewhat uh, different beliefs, spiritually speaking, most of it, if not all of it, goes back to the authority principle as to why they believe what they believe. Why do we believe what we believe? It has to do with how much we respect or don't respect authority with respect to the, the scriptures of, of God. And so the authority principle becomes very it's paramount to a Christian's existence. And as I said on the, the front of, of your handout, you see that the principle of authority undergirds every aspect of Christian living. Our practice and worship assemblies, our everyday decisions at home, work or school, and our obedience in carrying out the duties that are prescribed in the scriptures. Without understanding the, the authority of God and properly understanding what our place is with respect to the authority, our lives become really turned upside down, spiritually speaking. And as you see here, without an adequate understanding of the Lord's authority, most choose to follow their own desires or ambitions instead of conforming to the will of God. Why do we have so many different types of worship that you see around us that people claim as being worship? Why are there different things that they label as being worship to God? Well, if you go back to the very root and the core of it, it goes back to this adequate or inadequate understanding of authority. If you don't have an adequate understanding of authority, you're going to do things that you like. You're going to do things that you enjoy. Instead of understanding that the scriptures time and time again point to it's what God wants is what matters. And again, all that goes back to the authority of God. If God is the authoritative individual, being, God, Father in our lives, our goal should be following him 
doing the things that he wants, not necessarily the desires that we have in our lives. Our wants, our wishes, our desires get thrown out the window if we are, are couching our lives in a proper understanding of his authority. Because if his authority is indeed over us and controlling us, then everything we do is going to be to glorify and point to him, not to ourselves. And so we have this difficulty in our lives, especially us as Americans, I believe. I mean, the other world, I think, is catching up to us as well. We have this self-willed determination. You see it all the way from the inception of our our nation. If you go back and study history, you can't help but see that there is a self-willed determination of the individuals to be independent from Britain. And they'd do anything they could to stand up against the tyranny of Great Britain, wouldn't they? I mean, that's what you see in the history of this. It doesn't matter if it was their life. It doesn't matter if it was um, their families. It didn't matter what it was. They would give up food, lodging, shelter, family, life, blood, whatever it is to fight against them. Why? Because they truly believed in that principle uh, that they had a right to be self-governing. That self-will determination still sticks with us today. Unfortunately, I don't think it's the the same sacrificial type self-will determination. But you still see that self-will determination. So it's hard for us to put aside those things that we want and that we like and that we need, we think, for the things that God wants and God needs and God expects. If we don't understand that proper chain of authority and command, then we're going to be in danger of of really worshiping and living and doing things in ways that God does not want us to do because we forget about them. We put them back on the back burner instead. These two miracles, consider them, how they show us uh, how important that the Lord's authority is in life uh, so we won't cause others to stumble and we don't uh, cause issues or problems uh, in our own lives and become useless in his kingdom. I believe that's what these miracles help us see. And there's a lot of different lessons, obviously, I think you could pull from these two miracles in the text as we go through and read them. But as I read the two together, and as I considered how these two really give us great object lessons, I believe it came back to authority. And how we respect it, how we live it, how we understand it, and really how we apply it in our own lives today. And that's what you see, I think, in these two object lessons. Look with me quickly uh, at the first passage of Scripture as we deal with the first miracle in here. Uh, It's going to be the one that's uh, found in Matthew chapter 17, verses 24 through 27, uh, also known as uh, the, the miracle of finding the coin in the fish. And so if you would, look with me there in Matthew chapter 17. I want to read these four verses uh, this morning together before we move on. When they came to Capernaum, it says, verse 24, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, what do you think, Simon? Uh, From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Now, there's some debate uh, as to whether or not Jesus actually caused a miracle here in actually putting the coin in the fish. Or whether it was just really supernatural knowledge that that's the fish that he was going to catch. Now, I think that's a little bit far-fetched 
with respect to that. You've got a lot of different intangibles and different moving parts that you're going to have to say just happen to be providentially uh, that, that Peter caught that first fish that just happened to have a coin in its mouth from the supernatural knowledge of Jesus. Now, it really doesn't matter, to be honest with you. Who cares? Uh, either way, it's supernaturally uh, an existence of something that would not have occurred otherwise. Uh, and Peter went out there and caught this fish, and he opened the mouth, and he found the shekel inside of the fish. Now, the shekel, of course, would be uh, the, the double amount. It's not two drachma. It would be four drachma, uh, and that's when you look at the ESV version. Some of your versions probably actually call it a half-shekel tax. And then you see that the shekel that was found uh, by Peter was used to pay the tax for both of them, not just Jesus, but also Peter. And so you see here a miracle, I believe, that, that underscores... Uh, some type of authority uh, and the understanding that we have that we are under the authority of others as well as the fact that we are under God's authority and when we're under God's authority we are responsible for not making others to stumble and fall. I want to get into that in just a little bit more as we go on and move through the, the, uh, these points and these principles but I want to read the other parable I mean the other parable, see I did it, there it is. The other miracle uh, before we get into the discussion of these, these different points, because I think you're going to start seeing a little bit of bleed over, and you kind of see how these two fit together. If you really think, I don't think I've ever studied these two together. Um, in this, this series, in this class, I, you know, I've talked to you that I've tried to group par- uh, parables, miracles, together to try and get through them all. But also, in my grouping, I've honestly found uh, some, some very interesting connections between these. Uh, they're not as firm as we may like them to be. And these two miracles that we're studying today, I, I think there's an interweaving of the authority principle. They kind of both take a different uh, slant as you think about the studying of the authority of, of Christ. But uh, I think it's been very interesting, at least to me. And I've tried to do something to challenge you all and also get through all the, uh, the miracles before we can uh, get through with the, the, the quarter. But I want to look here at uh, the cursing of the fig tree that you see in Mark chapter 11. Uh, and if you've got your Bibles and want to turn to Mark chapter 11, I'm not going to read that whole 12 through 26. There's actually a, a period in the middle of that that I'm going to refer to that you may want to look at. The parallel passage, of course, is in the Gospel account of Matthew and Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21 uh, is very, very similar. However, it's a much shorter passage as you look at the uh, application and the... Um, the cursing of the fig tree there in chapter 21. It's only verses 18 through 22. Uh, and there is a, uh, it's, it tends to put it at the back end of the cleansing of the temple instead of beginning and the end. Uh, the, the cursing of the fig tree, as you look in the book of Mark, really becomes the bookends to the going into Jerusalem and cleansing the temple. We all have probably heard that story and uh, we kind of see where that, um, what, what happened there. Uh, so I'm not going to necessarily reiterate and read that whole uh, account of Christ cleansing the temple. But I think it's interesting that, that Mark places the chronology of, of this miracle of uh, cursing the fig tree as taking part, part of the way really before they went to the temple. And then after the fact, there's kind of like an end note there of them seeing that the, fully, uh, the fig tree had fully withered there. And then Christ makes his point to the disciples at that point. Look with me. Let's read Mark's account, chapter 11, starting in verse 12. On the following day, when they came to Bethany, uh, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, uh, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Skip down to verse 20. 
As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree wither away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and and does not doubt it in its heart, uh, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whatever you stand, uh, whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you uh, your trespasses. The, The Matthew account is very similar in structure. Uh, when you see it here, and, and uh, it does not get as much detail as Mark does. In verse 18 of chapter 21, it says, Now in the morning when he was returning to the city, he became hungry. He, by the way, is Jesus, became hungry. <clears throat> Seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it except leaves only. And he said to it, No longer shall there be any fruit from you. And at once the tree, uh, fig tree withered. Uh, Seeing this, the disciples were amazed and asked, how did the fig tree wither all at once? And Jesus answered and said, truly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. And all these things you ask in prayer, believing, uh, you will receive. You see a little bit slight difference between the two accounts. I didn't put the Matthew account on the screen because I wasn't intending to read it until this morning. Uh, but when you see the difference in the two accounts, there's minute di- differences between the two. The, the one that kind of stands out the most to us, of course, is the fact that Matthew's account says that the fig tree instantly withered. Uh, we don't read that in Mark. However, the idea that it did instantly wither is not necessarily excluded by the book of Mark. So therefore, it's not a contradiction uh, there with respect to the passages. Uh, there's just a reference made that when they came back from the city, uh, that Peter then saw that it had been fully withered, and that's when Jesus made the point in principle there. And uh, that really does jive still with uh, Matthew's account there, starting in verse 20, uh, when they saw it, and they said, hey, how did this tree wither uh, all at once? And so there was an understanding there of the withering of the tree. Uh, so the time frame is the only thing that really is the discrepancy, poss- the possible discrepancy between the passages. But when you look at it, it can be properly reconciled without any contradiction. I like Mark's account. Uh, it gives us a little bit more detail, I think, as to what occurs there with respect to this fig tree as it was there uh, in the area. Uh, I included in your handouts a, um, a, a reference to uh, the, uh, an article written by Brother Kyle Butt <clears throat> as he wrote for Apologetics Press. And I excerpted a, a part of that. If you go to Apologetics Press, you can search for the barren fig tree and it'll pull up this whole article for you. He gets in a lot more detail than I have, obviously, here in the, uh, the I think, five paragraphs that I've used from his, uh, his article there. I encourage you to look at it uh, and, and kind of examine and think about this barren fig tree and why was it uh, cursed by Jesus. And we'll talk about it briefly this morning, but in, just in case we don't get there, uh, I want to reference that and let you know that it is there uh, for your reading, for your understanding, hopefully, and your encouragement. Think of the first miracle with me. Finding a coin in the fish. Uh, this half denarii tax uh, that was referred to here by this individual comes accusing, really. It's an accusatory type question. It's not just saying, hey, have you paid your taxes this week? It's more or less, is, 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 your, is your Lord, is your master disregarding the local law and not paying the tax? Uh, that's the underwritten part of that question. Uh, by asking them, hey, does, your, does Jesus not pay the tax? 
There's an inference there that they are accusing them of not paying these taxes here. Uh, This tax, if you want to know just the history of it real quickly, if you look in Exodus chapter 20, uh, this was a a tax that was required under Moses, uh, Mosaic law. Uh, Jesus' question here uh, back to uh, them and really initiates the lesson that we see here on authority. Uh, In essence, he's pretty much saying, hey, who pays these taxes? As he looks and talks to uh, Peter when Peter approaches him. Uh, The question is very interesting to think about. Uh, in our lives, you know, it's different with us um, in some respects. Uh, when you look at the, uh, the, the requirement we have as Christians also to live under um, those civil governments that are uh, uh, among us, um, you know, we are told to submit ourselves, Romans 13, to the local governing bodies, to pray for them, to support them, to, to give them what is due to them. Uh, that would be the principle that we need to pay our taxes as Christians, I believe. Uh, the argument has been made by some that they think that we can disregard that or, or whatever because we're Christians and we're not of this world. I think that's a little bit of taking a little bit more liberty with the scriptures than what Jesus has said because he told us we're pretty much among the world and because we're among the world, we have to submit ourselves to the authorities. Why? Because those authorities are, are allowed to be in place or put in place by God. And so because of that, you've got a submissive role among the local authorities. That's not necessarily the same situation here. Uh, This tax was levied by the spiritual individuals. And this situation is actually the Jews. And so the the Jews would levy this tax. And and by the way, this is not a tax that you would go around as tax collectors and and collect. It was honestly a voluntary tax that you you were supposed to pay. But it wasn't anything, according to what I read in the historical sense, that they would go out and hunt you down if you didn't pay this tax. Uh, but it was a spiritual tax levied against the people. And supposedly it was for you to be able to pay uh, this part to the priests. And this uh, tax would, in essence, uh, be part of that uh, observation of the commandment of God to support both God's people, but also to indicate your submissiveness to him. And, in essence, would also go toward you being, um, your sins being overlooked and it would go toward that sense. Um, I hate to get into that because it's almost getting into the, the Catholic sense of, of paying for uh, the ability to sin. That's not what this is. You're not prepaying so you can sin later down the road. Um, this is more or less an observation and acquiescence to a commandment uh, to support uh, God's people. But again, it would have been God's Spiritual people being the nation of Israel would have been the Jews. And so in this situation here, when Jesus, uh, or really Peter is approached and asked that they're not paying this tax, it's not a local tax. I don't want to get you wrong here because if you, if you get into the essence of this miracle, you may get a little bogged down. Is, God, is, is Christ saying we shouldn't have to pay our taxes? Uh, that's not what he's saying here. It is a reference to the fact that you are obligated spiritually by the Jews to pay this tax. And it is one of those things where under Mosaic law that uh, was to be observed and to follow it. However, what the point that, that Christ makes to Peter is, is they are not under Mosaic law. Uh, in essence, they're not, well, not under, that's not proper. They were under Mosaic law. They were not under the governing authority of the Jewish people. I know that's a very uh, sticky situation to talk about there. These are, it's funny when you read these miracles, you know, you think four, four, four verses, oh, these aren't very big miracles. But honestly, I did more studying probably on some of these than I have some of the other miracles that were, you know, 20 and 30 verses long. Why? Because it's a little deeper here with respect to how it, for our understanding. 
In essence, though, when you look at this miracle of Christ, what you see is a miracle that would challenge uh, the individuals to respect and not offend those that are around them. That's the general gist of this miracle of Christ. It's an object lesson to his disciples that they, they paid this, even though they may not have been compelled to or required to, but they did so so that no one would look upon them unfavorably and therefore cause someone to have problems or issues with what they were teaching. Uh, it's one of those, let's conform to, to the world around us as much as we can to reach out and teach others. Uh, obviously, you don't want to compromise the, the commandments of God. You don't want to compromise those things that God tells us to abstain or, or stay away from. However, to the most part that you can, can you become like the Romans to help teach the Romans? And that's what Paul said, right? I, I myself you come to you and, and, and I, I'm like you as much as I can be so that I can reach out to you, so I can come to you and teach you and, and help you understand uh, the Word of God. Um, and that's what you see in this miracle here is the authority of God, the authority of Christ uh, is, is something that is to be understood that recognizes other authorities to be able to uh, exist as well. And also the fact that when we recognize the authorities of others, that we may have to do things that we ordinarily may not be required to do, but we do them so that we can reach out to them and conform to the extent that we can, can be uh, most receptive in their circles. I hope that makes sense to you. Uh, a couple of points here I want to uh, point out here. I think there's uh, some several uh, lessons regarding the, the respect and place of authority. I've already ma- mentioned a couple of these, but uh, first and foremost, I think you see in Matthew chapter 17, verses 24 through uh, 25 as well, underscoring the fact that, that Jesus respected uh, other authority, in this case, civil authority, uh, he, he did not acquiesce and turn away from those things which uh, uh, governed the locals. Uh, in Matthew 17, you see a parallel there of uh, what, the way that Christ uh, understood and reached out and, and acknowledged uh, local authorities. You'll remember in that passage of Scripture there, in chapter 17, um, 24 and 25, again, this is, uh, the, the same, this is that same uh, miracle, actually, of Christ. Uh, Christ being confronted, saying, hey, do you not pay this tax? He, in essence, tells Peter, let's pay the tax. Well, he did not do that uh, because he just, um, you know, he was compelled to. Uh, He did it because he wanted to. He wanted to show them that he acknowledged and respected uh, others that were around them. In other passages of Scripture, you also see this same respect that, that Christ had for authority and things that we can actually look at in our lives of respecting the civil authorities. Uh, Matthew chapter 22, it's a couple of chapters over from uh, this paying of the uh, one shekel or the two drachma tax uh, that we just were reading about. Uh, in Matthew chapter 22, verse, I think, uh, about, yeah, 21. Uh, this is a tribute to Caesar. And this is a passage, of course, a lot of us look at when we deal with whether or not Jesus espoused uh, the authority of those that were over them. And you see, of course, in that, this is whenever they're talking about, hey, um, you know, they bring up a, uh, or Jesus says, you know, do you have a, uh, a denarius? And, uh, and he looks at it and he says, you know, whose inscription is on this? Verse 20. Verse 21, and he says, they said, it's Caesar's. He said, well, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Well, there's an acknowledgement there by Jesus himself that there is to be something rendered to civil authorities. Uh, the authority of the civil government, the authority of those that may be governing us locally is to be understood and followed 
uh, even to us by Christians today. Uh, another principle we see regarding the respect and place of authority is that Jesus did not allow his authority to cause others to stumble. You've got to understand this passage, Jesus points out, I'm still the supreme authority. He's not relinquishing that. He's not uh, disregarding that. Uh, but what he's saying is just because I have all ultimate authority, that doesn't mean we get just to blatantly disregard everybody else. And in fact, if we can do something to reach out to them, to help them not stumble, not to falter, uh, then we have an obligation to try and do so, even under Jesus' authority. Uh, That really uh, reaches out to us, I think, as you think of the applicable lessons uh, with regard to our lives, that we've got to be careful uh, not to cause others to stumble. Paul, of course, as I said before, talked about his desire that, you know, we sometimes give up our rights rather than causing others uh, to falter. Romans chapter 14, uh, verses 3 and verse 21. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 13. Those passages of scriptures help underscore the fact that we can, as Christians even today, uh, relinquish some of the things or rights that we may have so that we don't cause others to stumble. An example in the first century was the the meat given to idols. And that's what you see in the book of 1 Corinthians being addressed by Paul, because what Paul says, hey, there's nothing wrong with eating that meat, honestly. There's nothing wrong with it. And inherently, in and of itself, that meat is just meat. Even if these people put it on there to intend it to be given to uh, idols or whatever it may be, first of all, it's error. It doesn't matter. You can still eat the meat. It doesn't matter. However, however, if you have individuals around you who believe that that is something that is wrong and that's something that may offend them because it is something that has been purposed to give to idols, don't do it. You may be free to do it, but you don't have to do it. And as Christians, we, we sometimes sense that to ourselves as well. I, I teach um, and talk to teenagers. This is really, I think, one of the the good points that you've got to make to teens and, and those in college is that you know, just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do something. Can I go to a dance and not dance and not partake of any liquor or not go after the dance and go to some post-party dance or post-party or post-dance party as a Christian? Well, you might be able to, but should you? That's where the rubber meets the road. That's a real example for us. What about in, in, in our professional lives? Could I go to a bar where they serve alcohol, people get drunk, fall off stools, get into bar fights, whatever it is, but can I go there and not partake of that type of behavior as a Christian and still be okay with God? Well, maybe. But should you? And I would say the answer is no. Why? Because it may offend somebody. It will cause your influence to suffer. That's where we get down to what Jesus is talking to the apostles here and what he's specifically talking to Peter about is that, you know, paying a a half shekel tax is nothing if it allows you to still ingratiate yourself with those others and be able to teach them the word of God. Can I do something? Should I do something? Those are the questions that get much deeper to the point uh, than we often get ourselves. We like the bright lines. We like the black and white answers. We do. We love them. Um, You know, then we get into the gray areas and we start, you know, I I can't tell you how many Bible classes I've been in where you get in these gray areas and you start getting people on both sides speaking up and talking, talking about how, well, you can't just say someone's wrong because they're doing this. 
On the other side, someone says, well, you know, they shouldn't be there. I don't, I don't agree with that. They're not good examples, blah, blah, blah. You get in these gray areas of fighting, uh, even among Christians. To me, if you get in a gray area and it causes that problem, stay out of it. Stay out of it. Why? This basic principle here. You don't want to do something that's going to cause you not to be able to reach out and teach others. And that's kind of what Jesus is getting at here with his authority. His authority uh, is supreme. His authority is, is primary. But also in his primary authority, he allows us to understand that there are some things that we might have the right to do, but we still shouldn't do it because of other reasons. Brother Robert. Yes. Well, and I agree 100%. It's an indication of maturity on how you handle a situation. A lot of us, unfortunately, including myself, I think falter sometimes because we're not thinking of the bigger picture. We're not thinking of the, the bigger scheme of things. That's why... And I see some teens in here, and I'm not trying to point necessarily teenagers out or criticize teenagers, but that's why as teenagers, we don't always see the big picture. I remember growing up, you know, I, I thought I had all the answers, but the more, the older I've gotten, the, the more I realize there's so much more that I don't know, and I will probably never understand it and never get. Teenagers don't like that uh, because we like to have answers as teenagers to kind of, you know, get at our parents and then say, you know, we know something better than they know. And, and we don't have the answers to everything. And the, the point of maturity is very important, and it really correlates with what's going on in this scripture as well. If the Jews had properly understood the authority of Jesus Christ, there would have been, first of all, no question about him paying that drachma tax. But secondly, they would have understood if Peter had responded and said, we're not required to pay that because we are of the new kingdom, not of the Jews. They would have understood that. Now, they didn't. They were not at that level to understand that. That maturity had not gotten to that point yet in their lives. So that's why maturity, even in this passage, would have changed probably the response that Christ had. Brother Jim. No doubt. Not a great point. It's, it is wisdom. It is the application of the knowledge. 
but it's also almost the perception of life, and that's what gives you the wisdom. When you are wise in what you do, you understand kind of the whole kit and caboodle. It's not just the knowledge, but it's also the application and how others may perceive that. Robert Wayne. No, it's, it's, it's always a difficult thing to try and weigh what a Christian should do with, with the things that we know that are right and wrong and the things that we are concerned about, like perception, those kind of things. Um, and, and it's a very difficult thing. I agree. It's, it's, it's so hard to do. Robert. Good point. Uh, I, I purposely tried to stay away from the political, <laughs> the political idea of rights because you're right. If you didn't hear Robert, what he says in our our climate today, in our nation, and I talked about the fact that we are a self-will determined country. Uh, the idea and concept of what our rights are has been so construed to the fact that there, it's really become, I believe, um, just misinterpreted. And that's really what Robert's saying is that that there is a, an idea here. You know, like. Criminals have more rights than the victims and law enforcement officers. Uh, I could talk to you all day about my thoughts on that. Uh, you know, the idea that, that we think that some individual has th- their rights outweigh the, the rights of, um, of the majority of other individuals who are standing up. I mean, you, you get such a, a twist on that idea and concept of what rights are, and you're 100% right. When not, our idea of rights becomes so construed to the fact that it disregards what's best for uh, everyone that's when you really got to sit back and scratch your head. I think that's where we've gotten in our country today, uh, where we, we start getting on the, the, the rights of an individual to be married that's a homosexual, that they have a right to be married. Well, they don't have a right to be married. Uh, I'll dispute that to the day I die, whether or not the Supreme Court agrees with me or not. You don't have a right to be married. You have a choice you could be married, and I think the states can determine what, what, what it is. That's not, still never going to determine what it is in God's eyes. And so when you start differentiating and separating all these things and trying to say, hey, my rights are better than your rights, of course, then we start violating all kinds of Christian moral principles, right? The first one being, I'm supposed to be looking more after your best interest than my own. And so you don't see that in the world today. Everybody's out for me, 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 my, 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 I, I, I. That's what they're after, not what's best for you. Uh, And that selfish ambition totally gets misplaced 
And again, it goes back to what I said at the very beginning. You see the little call out here. Without an adequate understanding of the Lord's authority, most choose to follow their own desires and ambitions instead of conforming to the will of God. That's what happens when we forget the principle of God's authority. When we start forgetting about the, the ultimate authority of, of Jesus and of Christ and, what, you know, and of God and all that they did for us and the fact that they are supreme. They are not just the creator, they are the sustainer, they are the savior. We forget all those things. Put it aside, put it out, put it out of our minds, put it out of our motivations, and then our selfish ambitions and goals come just roar into the front. 